One of my goals with the Born to Be a Badass podcast is to bring on the show women with a wide variety of both martial arts and self-defense experience. And today's guest is a woman who has probably the most extraordinary martial arts history of anybody that I have ever met. And combined with that, she has quite a bit of self-defense training and is building her own self-defense business. So we had a fascinating conversation, and I think that you're going to find it to be full of really cool insights and tips. And I think you're going to find that she is a really interesting person to hear from. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude, and today I am super excited to bring on the show a woman that I met fairly recently and got to train with. She is a fascinating woman with an amazing background. I don't think I've ever met anybody who does as many different styles of martial arts as she currently does or has done in the past, and who also has a self-defense mindset. So you are going to love listening to her. She is Amy Stewart Cooper, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she had real-life experience with violence. She's trained on and off in the martial arts for 25 years. Those arts include Taekwondo, Chinese Kenpo, Kaiju Kenpo, Hard and Soft Style, Tai Chi, Aikido, Okinawan Kenpo, Kobudo, and Nogi Jiu-Jitsu. Amy graduated from San Jose State University with a Bachelor of Fine Arts. She's worked as a photographer, a receptionist in a veterinary hospital, a behavioral therapist, and an art teacher for developmentally disabled adults. She now owns a restaurant with her husband and a self-defense business with her sensei. She's been married for almost 30 years and has two boys who are now in college. Welcome to the show, Amy. Wow, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I'm so glad we found a time that worked for both of us because ever since meeting you and spending time with you at the Violence Dynamics Prime, I have been just itching to get you on so I could ask you a whole bunch of questions. And I've been dying to get on. I was so thrilled that you asked me. I'm honored to be here. No, it's great. Well, let's dive into some get to know you questions and then we will head straight into the martial arts and self-defense realm. You ready? Cool. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. What is your favorite season or time of year? Fall. Absolutely fall. And that was true when I lived in California and also when I lived here in Idaho, but it's especially beautiful here in Idaho because we get an actual fall with colors changing and mild temperatures. It's really beautiful. Is there any particular part of nature that appeals to you in the autumn? I love it all, but because of where I work, I work right on the Boise River. So being on the Boise River and having all the, the, the colors are just amazing. And then when the leaves fall, it, it's like snowfall. There's so many deciduous trees there. And then to have the whole shoreline of the Boise River just completely carpeted in the yellow, gold, and orange 
leaves is it's absolutely amazing. It's so beautiful. Oh, that's quite a picture. The leaves are so thick that walking through it is like walking through powdery snow. Wow. Do you ever make a pile of leaves and then dive in it? I don't. Yeah, I don't have that kind of time. The The most I can do is I practice kata on the river shore. And as I walk through it, the leaves to get to the river shore, I kind of kick them away. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. What is the most fun aspect of owning and running your own restaurant? Being with the people. I'm a real people person. And my primary job is hostess. So greeting the people when they come in and having so many regular customers and talking with them and then making new friends of the new people when they come in, they'll often introduce themselves to me and say this is their first time in the restaurant and I can talk with them and get to know them. And that, that's by far the best part. Cool. If you could only practice one martial art, what would it be? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, it's going to have to be the Okinawan Kempo and Kobudo. Just our, our system is designed for a smaller, older person to take down a younger, bigger person. And when I met my sensei, Eric Sensei, I was already doing Aikido and I'd already practiced all these other styles. And I had absolutely no intention of ever picking up another style other than Aikido. And when I met Eric Sensei, he was teaching us a Joe class, and he had offered to teach us Aikido students Joe in a park for free on Saturday mornings because he knew my Sensei and one of my other, a couple of my other students knew him as well. And they they said, hey, we know this guy who's this weapons expert, and let's see if he'll teach us Joe. He doesn't have a, a dojo right now. Let's see if he'll do it. And so they asked him. He said yes because he loves to teach. And he said he would do it for free because he didn't have any, any overhead. He would just teach us in a park because he didn't have a dojo at the time. And I just looked at the way he moved, and I realized those body movements is how a smaller person takes down a bigger person. And he's five foot ten. He's not small. But his teachers, are most of them are older men, so he picked up their body mechanics, and that's just how our style developed. And so I was talking to him and, and was picking his brain. And I was like, I, I got to train with this guy. I got to get to know him. I got to train with him. And I was too scared to ask him to take me on as a private student since he didn't have a dojo. And I was just like picking his brain, hoping that he would offer at some point. And at one point it was like, this is it. I need to ask him. And I was sitting at my computer. I was trying to compose an email to him asking him to take me as a private student. But how do you do that? And if he said no, would that impact our Joe class? And so I'm sitting there going, how do I ask somebody to take me as a private student when he sent me a private message saying, would you like to come train with my friend Joe and me? And I was like, oh my God, this is, I mean, the synchronicity, that was amazing. And so I originally had planned on just training with them for six months to a year find out, learn their basics and find out some information from them. And I was going to quit. But then I just kind of ended up falling in love with the system. And we got to a point where Aikido, which I love, was becoming less relevant to me and to my self-defense. My, my senseis are awesome. My Aikido senseis are amazing. And they, they actually can fight with Aikido. But it takes a really long time to learn how to do that. So it was becoming a little less relevant. And once I started self-defense business and I'm practicing four different martial arts styles and I own a restaurant, 
it's like something has to give. So I was thinking maybe the Aikido needs to give. And we changed dojos. The Aikido program changed dojos. And they changed the night to the same night that I was doing the Okinawan Kempo and Kobodo. And at that point, I had a choice to make. I can't be in two places at the same time. So I chose the Okinawan Kempo and Kobodo. So that was my choice and how I made it. Oh, that's that's a great story. And, you know, it was a it was a theoretical question for me, but it's turned out to actually be a real life decision and choice that you had to make. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And the other styles that I'm still doing, the Tai Chi and the Nogi Jiu Jitsu are pretty much there to support my Okinawan Kempo and Kobodo. My Tai Chi Sifu knows my Okinawan Kempo senseis, and he actually has a seventh degree black belt in the same Okinawan Kempo system. And so when I do Tai Chi, I'm really integrating the most recent corrections that my senseis have given me. And I'm doing it slow movement and watching my hips, watching my my hands, my feet, whatever the most recent corrections they gave me, I'm integrating that into my Tai Chi. And my Sifu knows I'm doing that. So my body mechanics are way different than everybody else in the class because he knows that I'm using the class to support my Okinawan Kempo. And because he knows my senseis and he's trained with them and he has a seventh degree black belt in the same system, he will sometimes stop the class and say, I'm giving a correction to Amy only. Nobody else has to do what I'm going to say, but I'm telling her this because I know her senseis will want to do this. Then he'll give me the correction. Oh, that's awesome. And he'll turn back to the class. Everybody else ignore what I just said. (laughs) That's great. And then the Nogi Jiu-Jitsu is since a lot of fights go to the ground anyway, and I figure if men want to take women there anyway, you need to learn how to fight from there. And both of my Okinawan Kenpo senseis are good ground fighters. They don't teach it, but they've both practiced it. Eric Sensei, for many years, sort of a mixed ground fighting system that was designed for the stand-up fighter. And it was a mix of BJJ, Judo, and Russian Sambo. And my other Okinawan sensei, Joe sensei, wrestled in high school. So when we're fighting, if we go to the ground, we, we finish the fight. We, we go to submission or, or pin. And so the no-gi jiu-jitsu really also supports the Okinawan Kempo. Well, I, I love how that all sort of works together and all those different aspects come all together in one person, in you. Yeah, thank you. So I, I get a lot of criticism from people that I'm, I'm training in too many styles and I should be doing this. But I think once you hear my story and how I'm integrating this and how it all works, it totally works for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's one of the things that makes you unique and gives you a very different insight into both martial arts and self-defense and coaching. So that's one reason I wanted to bring you on the show. Oh, thank you. So what is your favorite self-care practice? Doing kata on the riverside, as I call it, my happy place, kata in my happy place. So at work, my restaurant is right on the Boise River. It is absolutely beautiful. And if I need a break, I just run out to the river shore and I do kata. And I do a lot of weapons. That's the Kobodo. And I keep my weapons with me. So I'll grab one and go out to the river shore and, and practice kata. And I have a, a specific place where I practice the kata. And if you look at it, if you look at the grasses out there, that distinctive eye pattern in a lot of kata, I've, I've worn out that eye pattern in the grasses on the river shore. So you can see exactly where I do the kata because there's a, there's a bare spot in the shape of an eye. That's awesome. 
That's great. That's that's really cool. I've got this amazing visual. <laughs> that's wonderful. I've taken pictures and posted them. I've posted them on Facebook before, and I can show you. But yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. What advice would you give young women today that you wish you had had when you were in your 20s? I'm so glad you asked me this question because I just had this conversation with a young woman in her 20s at a, at a Christmas party. She's my friend's daughter-in-law. Actually, this is, again, bringing this all together, this is a very regular guest of my restaurant that we're so close now that she invited me to her Christmas party. And I was talking to her daughter-in-law, who's a world-class triathlete. And she asked me, when do I jump for my dreams? She's already going for her dreams. She's a world-class triathlete, but she hasn't jumped into it headfirst yet. And she asked, when is the best time for me to do that? And I said, now, right now. Do not hesitate. Jump headfirst. Now is the time. Go for your dreams right now. Do not wait for anything. Because, and I kind of said, because of the story of my life, as I've been training off and on for so many years, you know, I said, you don't know when you're going to get pregnant and start a family. I know some world-class triathletes who just weird things happened and they ended up getting pregnant and they put their careers on hold. And so I told her, just do it now. You're married to an amazing man who absolutely supports you in every way. And you don't have kids yet. Do it now. So my advice for young women in their 20s is whatever your dreams are, do it now. Do not wait. Do not hesitate. Just go for it. And if, God forbid, something happens that you can't go for your dreams, keep your head in the game so that when you're ready to go for your dreams, you're already mentally prepared. I think that's really solid advice to say, don't delay going after what it is you really dream about because you're right. You never know what's going to happen. You you absolutely have no guarantee that you're going to have, you know, oh, well, next year I can do it. So I think that advice to not just go for it now, but also if something stops you temporarily, don't just give up and let go and give up your dream, but hang on and really be prepared for the next opportunity when you can actually step back in and start moving towards it again. I think that's excellent advice. And I think that's something that really we could all listen to, not just the 20-year-olds. I think there's women in their 30s, 40s, 50s who are in a stage of life change who are wondering, like, should I, should I do it now? Should I change now? Should I take that risk now? And, you know, what about that thing that I did let go of because I you know, got married, had children, or something else sort of derailed the dream? I think that that advice is really solid, no matter what age you are. So thanks for sharing that. That's great. You're welcome. And I also want to say for women that are middle-aged or, or older, I mean, yeah, maybe your kids are, are grown, but now we have elderly parents to take care of, or maybe our careers are, are really taking off. So, and it's okay to, to change your dreams a little bit, to, to alter it, fit your new reality. And if your dream is business, even the new marketplace. I mean, my degree is in darkroom photography with film and chemicals. Everything is digital now, but those skills transfer directly to digital. And I'm a restaurateur now. I'm not a photographer anymore, but I take all of the publicity photos and advertising photos for my restaurant. And those skills are still there. I'm still using them, not in the way that I originally planned, but I am still using them. And I had a marketing director 
email me recently and asked me, oh my God, who does the marketing for your restaurant? I have never seen photographs like that before for a restaurant. And I said, oh, thank you. I do. My degree is in fine art photography and I photograph the food as if it's a landscape. And I thank you for saying that. I'm really glad it shows. Oh, it really does. I've seen some of the pictures that you've posted, plates of dinner, and then also some of the extraordinary desserts that you guys serve. And they really are works of art. And I can see how your photographic eye really looks at them that way and can capture an image that is much different than, you know, just a plate of food or just a, just a picture of a thing. It, it really does show that you have talent and skills and that eye for it, too. Thank you. And, and also being right on the, the Boise River, I use the landscape in the background of the food photography. And I look at the whole picture as if it's, as if it's a landscape photo, not just a plate of food. That's neat. Well, let's dive a little bit more into the world of martial arts and self-defense. I mean, we've talked about that already, but I would like to go a little bit deeper. So what was your first experience of feeling or being unsafe? So I don't remember not knowing that I was in danger. Not that anything happened to me horribly at an extremely young age. But these issues were just always around. My family were news junkies, and we just talked about these things. And so I don't remember ever not knowing that I was going to be in danger at some point. But when it really happened was when I was kind of older elementary school, like sixth grade, and through middle school, seventh and eighth grade. I lived in Palo Alto, California, near Stanford University, and my best friend lived in Menlo Park, the other side of the university, by Stanford Hospital, if you know the area. And there was a field there and a creek that we had that I'd go through, and there was Stanford Woods. And at that time, there was a rapist in Stanford Woods that was attacking girls and women, young women on bicycles. And here I am riding my bike through the woods to get to my friend's house almost every day. And the obvious question is, why didn't I take an alternate route? And the reason is because the only other alternate route was along El Camino Real, which is a very busy road. And I probably would have gotten hit by a car. So I had this choice to make. Do I risk getting hit by a car? Or do I risk encountering the rapist? And cars are constant and rapists, as horrible as as it is, I mean, they they aren't always there. So I chose to go through the woods and risk encountering the rapist. And my bike had a handlebar basket. So I kept a bottle of aerosol hairspray in it because pepper spray and mace weren't a thing at the time, at least not for civilian use. So that's the best I could do. And then I took a 12-inch long screwdriver out of my dad's tool chest, and I held that in my right hand. So just on a daily basis, riding my bike to my best friend's house, I had the hairspray in my basket, and then the screwdriver in my right hand in case I encountered this this rapist. And that was a daily basis for about at least two to three years. I don't remember if the rapist was ever caught or if he just disappeared. I just remember at one point it was no longer an issue, but that was pretty well into high school. Well, that's quite an image of you. I mean, you're not a big woman. So I imagine as a girl of that age, you were even smaller, you know, riding your bike and like armed to the teeth and ready to go. 
Yeah, yeah, and um, I'm sorry to say that I did get some criticism for that. I had some people say I shouldn't do that. But, you know, my safety is more important than anybody else's feelings, so I did. Yeah, good for you. So how then did you get into martial arts? I had recently graduated from college, and by chance I met a guy, I think he had just earned his second-degree black belt at West Coast Taekwondo, and I believe you know him, or you've, Piercy Bastiani, did, did you know him? Or I know you know who he is. I did know him, not as a second degree. I, by the time I met him, he was a quadrinim fifth degree. Wow, okay. So I, I met him by chance. I was taking, I was, actually, when I was a photographer, I was taking a photo for his second degree black belt. And I was, you know, I get to know people. So um, it was a special occasion. Why am I taking your photo? And he said that he had just earned his second degree black belt in Taekwondo. I was like, oh, that's cool. That, you know, it's something I've always wanted to do, but I never had time until now. I just graduated from college. And he said that he was teaching a women's self-defense class and would I like to come? And so I was like, yeah, of course. So I, I came and I brought my friend and I loved it so much that I joined um, West Coast Taekwondo with him. And that's how I got started. So yeah, for me, self-defense and martial arts has always gone together. So now here I am teaching women self-defense and I feel like I've, I've come full circle. Yeah, that's really neat. And I didn't realize that we had that connection to West Coast. It's not West Coast Taekwondo anymore. It's now gosh, West Coast World Martial Arts, I think, is the current name. Oh, wow. but, uh, yeah, yeah, it's gone through a lot of changes, but it was West Coast Taekwondo when I started as well. And that was, that was the base, even though we migrated from that to add a whole bunch of other disciplines and, and areas of focus. That was how it started originally. So it's pretty cool that that's where you started as well. When we were at Violence Dynamics and you were telling me about how um, West Coast Taekwondo changed and added in all these different styles. That was really exciting for me to hear. I'm really glad that we had that conversation. Yeah, it's a pretty cool organization. And um, you do end up being exposed to a lot of different styles and traditions now. So that's, it's pretty cool. So when did you start teaching self-defense then? That was actually really recent. That was in September was our first class. Do you want to hear the full story about how that happened? Absolutely. Okay. So, um, God, where do I start? Because this is a long story, but hopefully a really good one. Can you tell me where, where you want me to, to start? Yeah, I guess, I guess the first place would be, given your long history in multiple martial arts, what was it that drew you to self-defense? And how do you see them as different? I guess it's the place to start. What drew me to self-defense was the real life experience that I had. Um, when I was really young, before I was in high school, my best guy friend of 18 months tried to rape me. And um, he lived near our school and there was a public um, swimming pool near the school. And I would frequently just bring my swimsuit to school and we would go swimming um, at the public swimming pool after school. And he knew I didn't like changing in the locker room. So one day he said, hey, why don't you just come over to my house because it's on the way 
and you can change in my my mom's room in private and then we'll we'll go and it's like oh thank you that you know that was really nice of him and so as i was changing my clothes he burst into the room and threw me down on the bed and tried to rape me and um i had never fought before i had never i never roughhoused throwing fists and i remember trying to experiment on his face how to form a proper fist so i would make a fist i'd hit him in the face no that wasn't effective form a fist a different way hit him on the face because that was a little more effective so i'm experimenting on his face i'm teaching myself how to fight in the middle of him trying to rape me and um at some point i just i flailed i became frustrated and i and i flailed and i accidentally gouged him in the eye and so he reflexively you know held his eye to protect it at that point it was like we're done and i just punched him and hit him in the face um several times until he just kind of cowered on the bed and i yelled at him you know if you come after me while i put my clothes back on i'm gonna kick you in the balls as hard as i can and so i got dressed as as quickly as I could and I ran out of the house and I ran home and told my mom and she was like it's okay dear it's not your fault you're the victim here and I was like well duh of course I'm the victim here I know I know I didn't do anything wrong why are you saying this to me and I didn't know yet that society kind of victim grooms us I was so young I hadn't picked that up yet and so I thought my mom lost her freaking mind trying to tell me that I was the victim when I knew perfectly well I was the victim and trying to tell me I didn't do anything wrong when I knew perfectly well I didn't do anything wrong. Um, it wasn't until years later that I found out that society victim grooms us. So um, it was kind of that experience that got me into the women's self-defense. And then the martial arts, I just always, I, it, it's fighting. I didn't, at that point, I didn't really see there was a big difference between self-defense and martial arts. And it was when I was at West Coast Taekwondo, and that was mostly tournament fighting, which was fun and and amazing, and I absolutely loved it. But that's not the way I got attacked. I didn't get attacked at sparring distance with um, you know with a punch or a kick. I got attacked with he bull rushed me, and pushed me down and grabbed me. And so at that point, I started to realize well, there's a difference between self defense and martial arts there's obviously some overlap now i now i know how to form a good fist with all that taekwondo experience i now i can do it and i can throw a good punch and i can throw a good kick so it was there's overlap and it was related but it was just a little bit different that's a great illustration of the difference and i'm sorry that you went through that but i gotta tell you i absolutely love this image that i now have of you in my mind practicing learning how to punch on somebody's face <laughs> while he's trying to rape me the the realization <laughs> i had was he had he only had two hands and he couldn't hold me down and undo his pants at the same time he had to make choices and unfortunately half his job was already done i was already naked so that part of his job was done but he still had the problem of undoing his pants and if i can get graphic here getting his penis out and he can't do that and hold me down at the same time. And the choice I had to make was covering my modesty because I was modest. I didn't even like changing my clothes in front of other girls at the public locker room. And here I was, my best guy friend of 18 months, seeing me naked and 
you know, touching my nakedness. And so I had to make the choice between covering myself and fighting back. And at some point, I, I just fought back. And um, so we both only had two hands and we just had choice to make. Yeah. And I, I love that. What actually made the difference was something that you did accidentally when you started to flail and you, you caused that eye gouge, you caused a major reason for him to start focusing on something other than trying to get at you. Yeah. And even at that close distance, once I taught myself how to form a proper fist, it still wasn't super effective against him because he was on top of me and there wasn't that full extension that you need. And I was hooking it. I mean, I had figured that part out, you know, I, to hook it and not punch straight. It still wasn't that effective. And so I, I started getting desperate and I just, one of my sayings in self-defense is when in doubt, freak out. And that's why, because I just got frustrated and I just started flailing and freaking out. And that's when I accidentally did something super right. And that was the eye gouge. Yeah, that's great. So after that experience and after all of those years in the different martial arts, what was it that triggered you to want to start a self-defense business? When I got back into the martial arts, because I'm so focused on self-defense and because I did successfully defend myself, I wanted to teach. So that was a goal of mine from pretty early on was I wanted to teach. And our other mutual friend, Rory Miller, was going to come to my dojo where I do Aikido, where I did Aikido. I just recently quit, so it was still present tense in my, in my mind. And this is a little bit unnecessarily complicated. The dojo is owned by Ava Steinwald Sensei, who does karate. And the Aikido program was um, just renting mat space. And so she has a mutual friend who was friends with Rory Miller and he offered to come teach in Boise and she had a dojo. So he was coming to our dojo and my Aikido sensei, Brian sensei was already a huge fan of Rory Miller. I, I kind of heard the name. I didn't really, wasn't that familiar with him, but I'd heard the name and Brian sensei was like, when he heard Rory was coming, was like, Oh my God, this is insane. We live in a small town in Idaho and Rory Miller's coming to teach her this crazy and he insisted that I go. He, he said, you know, you need to come. You need to meet Rory Miller. You're going to love him. He's amazing and wonderful in every way. So I signed up for the class and I started reading meditations on violence. And I had a few questions about some of the things he said. And this was when I was picking Eric Sensei's brain. We had just started training together. You know, what would you do in this situation? What would you suggest that, you know, I do in this situation? I picking his brain. And at, at one point I asked Eric Sensei, hey, can you stay with me 15 minutes after class um, to, work, to work on this thing that I read about in, in this book? And he said, no, 15 minutes isn't long enough. Two hours. I'll give you two hours. And for free. He just offered me two hours for free, which was mind blowing. And so we worked on that stuff and that was really cool. And then um, Rory Miller came to my dojo and um, I was really scared meeting him. Because he said, I, I think it was in Meditations on Violence, I'd read a couple of his books by the time he came, that as a former prison guard, he can assess people really quickly. And I was like, oh my God, what if he doesn't like me? And I even posted on, on Facebook that I was, I'm sitting in my car, nervous to go meet Rory Miller, but I just have a feeling this is going to be a turning point in my life. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be a turning point in my life. And so we met, and fortunately he did like me, 
and we hit it off. And um, Lisa, Lisa Abbott was there that weekend as well. That's how I met Lisa. And it was a two-day seminar on the second day of the seminar as, when it was over. And we're riding, we're walking out to the parking lot. At the same time, but not quite together, Rory and me, he says to me, isn't beating the crap out of people fun? I said, yes, yes, it is. And he just started talking and he got really deep really fast. And I was like, you know, whoa, I had no idea that he had this much depth to him. I mean, he's a super nice guy, but this is like really deep stuff. And I guess he liked what I had to say because he told me that he wanted to train with me again. He really enjoyed training with me and he wanted me to do like Lisa does and um, travel, train with him. And he said, go to my website and look at my events page. And if there's any place that's easy for you to get to, please come and train with me. So I did that and I saw that he was going to be in Berkeley in a, in a few months and I'm from the Bay Area. So I thought I'd make a long weekend of it. And so I went there and that's where I met Beverly Baker was that weekend. And I, I must have told him at some point that I wanted to teach and a few of us wanted to teach. So he um, arranged for us to do that. He had the owner of the dojo. Peter just like literally grab people off the street and say, hey, do you want a couple hours free self-defense training with Rory Miller? And he kind of assigned us, you know, students, you know, I, so I took a group, so I got to start teaching. And um, this is really hard to say, but you know, you know what a badass Beverly is. Yes. And I'm sure everybody who's listened to your podcast knows what a badass Beverly is. So we were, we were training and we were going really hard and I accidentally broke her nose and to, yeah, and it was, it, she is such a badass. It was far more horrifying for me than it was for her. She thought it was cool and fun <laughs> and a new experience for her. I've never had my nose broken. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine Beverly having this attitude, right? Yeah. And just to, I, I hope she's okay with me telling the story, but that night there was a party at the dojo. And um, you couldn't, her face hadn't bruised up yet. You couldn't see that her nose was broken. And I didn't deviate her septum. I hit the um, cartilage off the bone. And we happened to have a doctor there as a student. So he took her in the bathroom and reset her nose and sent her back out. And she just kept training. And um, I, you could totally see Beverly doing this. And so that night there was a party at the dojo. <laughs> and you couldn't see that her nose was broken yet because her face hadn't, it was, it was a little bit swollen but it wasn't knocked to the side and her face hadn't bruised up. And there were these two guys that were sparring and she and Rory and I were watching them and Beverly was like, I want in. And she like jumps the two guys and she starts fighting with them. And one of the guys stepped out so she could fight the other guy. And he's like a foot taller than she is. She's five, four. This guy is at least six, four. And those guys weren't there earlier in the day. They didn't know her nose was broken. And so the guy she's fighting with did a crescent kick to the side of her head and knocked her to the ground. Now, Rory and I are like gas. We're like, oh my god, because we didn't want her to rebreak her nose. Well, she used to do capoeira, so from the ground, she did a handstand sidekick to the guy's floating ribs, jumps up and keeps fighting him. <laughs> <laughs> Rory and I were like, oh my god. And I was like, lady, I broke your nose the first time. If you rebreak it again tonight, that's on you. Um, so I mean, she had no problem with the fact that I broke her nose. And I was still traumatized by it. So I started writing to, so Rory was awesome about talking me through it. And when I got back home, I thanked him for that. And I still had more emotions to process. And he helped me through that. And that kind of got us in the habit of writing each other on a 
on a regular basis. And so then the following year, this was in 2017. So the following summer in 2018, he came back to my dojo and um, Lisa came back too. And they talked me into going to Violence Dynamic Prime 2018. And I had such a great time there that I decided I was going to go in the spring to Violence Dynamics, Washington, D.C. Because my family is from D.C. and um, my grandparents are buried in Arlington. And I, it was kind of a bucket list thing for me to go to Arlington and pay my respects because I had never done that before. And so I was like, I'll just make a trip of it. I'll go to D.C. and go to Arlington and pay my respects. And Rory's parting words to me at Washington, D.C. were, I want the next generation of women and girls to totally kick ass, and I want you to help make that happen. I need to backtrack a little bit. Um, I had a friend that I met at Rory's first seminar at my dojo named Jay, who teaches women self-defense. And I had helped him teach a few women self-defense classes. And so this past summer, 2019, at Rory's seminar, Jay told me that he had to move to California for his wife's job. And would I please help take over his program? He had been training some um, young women as assistant teachers, and he wanted to turn the program over to them. And would I be there as a resource for them? Because they don't have the experience that I have. None of them are martial artists. and They just don't have the kind of experience that I had. And I was like, I will think about it. I wasn't really sure that's what I wanted. And um, because I don't have a black belt yet, that kind of messes with my head a little bit, to be honest. And I mean, your fourth degree and Beverly is second degree. And I don't even know what degree Lisa is. All you guys have black belts and I don't. I have a lot of knowledge, but I'm still not a black belt. And that kind of messes with my head. So I didn't know if I was ready. And so I told Jay, I, I would think about it. And when Rory comes to do the seminars at my dojo. We always have dinner at my restaurant, and um, I invite all the attendees to come to my restaurant. So we had dinner Saturday night and Sunday night, and we were talking about this. And Sunday night, especially, he was asking me, Why are you bulking at this? Why are you not jumping at this opportunity? This is what you want. You want to teach women self defense. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready. And he's like, how much more ready do you need to be? You have all this knowledge. Why aren't you sharing it? Why are you traveling with me all over the country, train with me if you're not going to teach? Why aren't you jumping at this opportunity? And at some point, the thought occurred to me, if Rory Miller is trying to talk you into teaching women's self-defense, maybe you ought to listen to him. And so I said, okay, I'll do it on one condition, and that is I can bring in a man as the attacker because as a small woman I can show other women how it's done but I can't give them that resistance I can't give them the realistic attack and this was actually going to be a little bit of a hard sell to Jay because he had always said he didn't want any other men involved in the program other than himself and so that was my decision I could do it if you would allow me to bring in another man and Eric Sensei was my first choice for all the reasons that I've said and, and more, that he's been with me with the self-defense from the beginning. And my self-defense training with Rory has been intertwined with my self-defense training with Eric Sensei. And there are lots of other reasons about his personality and other things like that, why I thought he would be absolutely perfect to, to do this with me. 
and Jay goes, you know, I don't know, you know, how I feel about bringing other men, and I, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about this. And Rory was there, and he said, look, she's been training with the, this guy for two and a half years. You need to trust her judgment. If there's anything wrong with him, she would know. And Jay was like, okay, yeah, you're right. Why don't you bring Eric Sensei to, to the Y, which is where Jay was teaching, Tuesday night, and I'll meet him, and let's see if this works. So I agreed to that. Well, now I had to tell Eric Sensei what was going on because he had no idea. So I messaged him and I, and I asked him, do you want to do this? And he said, yeah, do you want to teach women's self-defense with, with me under Jay? Because Jay's marketing was really good and he already had all these programs going and we were just going to step right in. And um, he said, yes, he was interested. So I said, great. Instead of class Tuesday night, we're going to the Y and you're going to meet Jay and see if this works out. So we go into the Y and Jay had a private student and he wanted Eric Sensei and me to train with one of his assistant teachers that he was um, training as a, to become a teacher. And so we walk in and Jay said, this tryout, I'm not sold on you doing this. Let's see how you do. So Jay is off on one side of the mat with his private student and Eric Sensei and I were with the, the student teacher. And she was asking us questions. Well, what would you do? what would you do if somebody attacked me like this? And um, Eric Sensei was like, well, I don't know, let me attack Amy like that, we'll see what happens. And so I, he would attack me and I'd get him in a joint lock or something and he would like, like you know, out, out, out tap and, and start laughing. We, we pain giggle a lot. And he was like, well, let me try this on you. And so then I would attack him and then he would like, you know, hit me or joint lock me or whatever and, you know, ow, 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 and, and, and more pain giggles. And so next thing we know, we're, we're getting to this full on, we're just attacking each other and laughing the whole time. And um, Jay turns around and he sees what's going on and he goes, oh, you guys have one of those relationships. Okay, Eric, you're in. And from that moment on, it's like Eric and Jay were best friends. Oh, that's an amazing story. And I think one of the things that I really resonate with the most is that point where Rory just said to you, hey, why are you doing all of this if you're not actually going to turn around and share what you know with the people who need it? And I think that question just kind of cuts right to the heart of why all of us are doing this is because we have this knowledge and these gifts and to not turn around and use them and share them so that we can make other people safer would be a denial really of who we are. And I think a real failure of, I guess, I'm trying to think of what the right word is. You know, we all, we're all here for a purpose and we all have gifts to share and to not do that is such a denial of who we are. So I love that he asked you that and that you were wise enough to go, yep, 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 I need to. Well, not just that, denial of who we are, but I can't remember if he said it this way or if I took it that way, but I almost took it as I have a moral obligation. Exactly. I'm ethically charged to do this why am I withholding information from the people who need it yes because I think I'm not ready because I think I need a black belt yeah because I think I need a couple more years and the following week um he and Sheree Martin Smackdown mm -hmm. he and Sheree and I went to Colorado Springs the following weekend so that was so awesome to have him like two weekends in a row like that and to have to be with Sheree two, two weekends in a row as, as well. And so we started like planning out what we're going to do, what I'm going to do. 
and you know how I'm going to start teaching. And he said that my biggest problem was going to be taking all my knowledge and distilling it into a short amount of time. And he was absolutely right. And he's still right. I'm still, honestly, I'm still struggling with that. I think we all do. Yeah. Okay, good. That makes me feel better. Yeah, I think we all do because it's all so important. And we want to give the people that we talk to and the people that we work with the absolute most that we can. We want them to have all the things, all the knowledge, all the tools, all the skills. And to not give all of that feels wrong. And yet we don't have them for a lifetime. We, we have them for a certain period of time. So we have to pick and choose what we can actually share and teach in that period of time that we have. So I think we all struggle with that. And how long have we been training? Yeah. Long and how time. long have we been doing self-defense? And how many books have we read? How many articles have we read? Yeah. How do we distill that into the most important information in the way they could hear it and retain it in such a short amount of time. So the way our class has, has evolved, and I, I need to backtrack just one more time and say that originally we were going to do this with Jay, but he decided or discovered that owning a business in two different states was not worth the paperwork. So he, when he realized that he was going to be um, Streetwise Self-Defense California and we were going to be Streetwise Self-Defense Idaho, and he was going to sort of, again, we were going to partner with him and kind of work under him. And when he realized that the tax implications of that was just not worth it, he's like, okay, you guys do your own thing. I will help you get started because we were just going to step right in to the infrastructure that he had already created. He said, I'll still give you that. And I'll help you guys. You guys have to be your own entity. So at this point, now we're on our own to develop our own program. We really liked what Jay had created. So we kind of followed his format and just made it our own. And so it's a three-hour class, that seminar format, that is designed to be repeatable. And the format that we've decided works best for us is I get one hour to teach soft skills. I take the lead on the soft skills, and then he gets two hours to lead the physical skills. So now I have one hour to teach what they need to know in a way they can retain it. That is a really tall order. Even if I could give them all the information in an hour, which is not possible, it's so much. How are they going to retain it? And that's, that's been tough. But Rory has been doing an amazing job mentoring me on this. And um, he actually turned one of our emails into a blog post. So I'm kind of proud of that. Yeah, that's cool. So I guess this would be a really good time for me to ask you, what are the must-know concepts, strategies, and tools that women need to have if they want to be safe? Because I imagine that's really what you're teaching is those absolute must-know things. In the soft skills? Yeah, in both. In both. And maybe just describe what the soft skills are and, and because I think a lot of people haven't heard the term soft skills or hard skills. So soft skills are um, what's also sometimes called alpha skills because these are the first set of skills we need to keep ourselves safe and also sometimes called pre-contact skills because these are before the fight actually happens. These are the things that we do to try to not be targeted in the first place or to try to stop the attack coming from the first place. So the overreaching concept is be a hard target. The predators want to attack the 
weakest gazelle on the Serengeti, we don't want to be that gazelle. So to make ourselves a hard target. And the beautiful thing about this and the, the, the tagline that I've created is self-defense is life enhancement. The things that we do to protect ourselves and to be um, a hard target makes our lives better on a daily basis anyway. And so boundaries, know your own boundaries, be able to enforce them. Situational awareness, understanding what's around you and in a way that's not going to make you paranoid. And then trust your gut. Always trust your gut. So those are the three major points that I try to get across. And I describe the basics of what this is about. And then the whole rest of my hour is telling stories that illustrate this. Giving people information, they're not going to retain it if you just say, this is what you do. If you tell them a story to illustrate it, they're more likely to retain it. They're more likely to relate it to something that happened in their own life. And it's more interesting. They're a lot more engaged. So I basically just lay out these, these three things. And I just tell a whole bunch of stories that illustrate it. And that keeps them engaged and that gets them asking questions. And the main question that I asked Rory that he turned into an email was, in such a short time span, is my job more to intrigue than to inform? And he said yes. And I asked him that because one of our repeat students told me that one of the stories that I, that I tell made her change how she sees the world. And I was like, that's more important in such a short amount of time, when you cannot possibly give them all the information they need, getting them to change how they see the world, intriguing them in that way, that's what's gonna make it safe and hopefully get them to seek more information and get all this information that they need because now they're on this path because I intrigued them. I love that. That is a wonderful approach for you as, as a teacher. And it's a wonderful way of looking at what the experience can be and it's very different than what most people picture when they think about, quote, learning self-defense. So I absolutely love that. Can you talk a little bit about the hard skills? Yeah, so Eric, I address him and refer to him as sensei when he's being my sensei. And when we're teaching, he's not my sensei, he's my partner. So sometimes I, that's why sometimes you'll hear me refer to him as sensei, and sometimes you'll hear me refer to him as just Eric. So in this context, just Eric, not sensei. The Techniques that we teach are basically vehicles for principle. And, oh God, this is hard describing physical skills verbally. But we do a lot of the basic grabs and things that women get. And we also frequently ask them throughout the class, do you have any scenarios that you're interested in that you want us to discuss? So that way we make sure that we're hitting what exactly they came for that day. So it does change up. And this is how our class is a three-hour class, yet it is designed to be repeatable because there are some core techniques that we hit every single time. And so the repeat students get more reps on those core techniques, but then it's a little bit different every time, depending on the ones who need students there that day. So they also get something different every time. So we do get repeat students, and that, that is why. But a lot of what we're teaching are techniques that you don't need to be big and strong to do. So for basic strikes, um, we really advise that they don't throw a fist if they're not going to train. We really advise that they throw a palm heel. It's a lot 
safer and it's just as effective. We throw a lot of elbows and we throw a lot of knees and just a couple of really easy basic kicks. And there's a lot of using gravity to your advantage, a lot of using your hips to your advantage. All of this stuff is baked into our Okinawan system. Eric has cross-trained in many other systems. The ground fighting that I already mentioned, he's also done some Muay Thai and, and things like that. So we do throw in a little bit of Muay Thai, um, those types of, of clinching knee kicks. So we teach from a grab, not from monkey dance. That just doesn't happen to women. And we have a few techniques from each common kind of grab. No one technique is going to work for every single person. So we have to personalize it a little bit. If this technique for getting out of a choke doesn't work for you, we got this other one here. Or if we need to modify it slightly for the student, just because her body works differently, or maybe she has some injuries or disabilities, um, then we can do that as well. And then at the end of the class, he suits up in the armor and attacks each one of us, starting with me so I can show how it's done and fight from his attack to him being on the ground and they win. And he does give reasonable, realistic, it can't be super realistic if they're not ready for it, but enough that they at least get a feel for this is what it's like. And um, so for the ones that are repeat students, he's obviously gonna attack them a little bit harder than somebody who that's their first day. And we've had students, that if they don't want to do it, if they're just too scared, we tell them right in the beginning as part of our intro, anything that you don't want to do, you don't have to do. You have the right to exercise your boundaries in real life as in here. And if you tell us you don't want to do a technique, we will celebrate the fact that you are exercising your boundaries and you're enforcing your boundaries. That is perfectly fine with us to say no. Or if you want us to modify something so it's more comfortable for you, we'll do that too. And there have been students that the first day did not want to fight Eric when he was um, when he was suited up, but the second time they came back, they were more ready to do it. And there was there was one lady that um, after she got him down on the ground, she gets up, she goes, "That was so empowering," and um, she's she's still coming back. Oh, that's every great. time she loves it more every time. I love that, and I I love that you are very consciously articulating your respect for their boundaries. And I think for a lot of women, that's probably the first time they've ever experienced somebody saying something like that. So I, I love that you are modeling that and giving women an opportunity to say, ah, oh, you know what, I, I don't want to do this right now. And being able to set that boundary and have it respected. And I think that one of the things that happens when you do something like that because I've had the same experience in my classes is not everybody wants to jump right in and do everything. But if they get a chance to watch and they can watch other women doing it, it's sort of a form of stress inoculation and, and fear management. And especially for women who have already experienced violence, it can be really, really scary to engage with a man to do this kind of training. So if you try to force it and say, oh, come on, you can do it, you know, get out there, go on, girl, you actually can cause a lot of damage and harm. And so this approach of just saying, hey, you know, this is for you. You go at your pace, do what you're ready for, and just trust the process. You, you will get out of it what you need to get out of it. I, I love that you take that approach because I think it's really the only approach that you can take and be 
morally, ethically in the right place. So I love that that's how you approach it. Thank you. And yeah, I, I agree. It is a moral and ethical thing. And, and I mean, one out of every four or five women has been sexually assaulted. And so if anytime I'm in a room with women and I count and there's four or more, it's like, okay, how many, who, who's the one who's been sexually assaulted? Well, I have, so it's probably me. But if there's eight, 10 women, okay, who else has? And I just kind of always keep that in mind that in any group of, of women, there's going to be a quarter of them have been sexually assaulted. Well, now you're in a women's self-defense class and a lot of women go because they already have been. So the, the odds or the numbers are probably even higher. And so we have to consider that of our students, at least a quarter, if not more, have already been sexually assaulted. And we have to be aware of that and we have to be sensitive to that. And sometimes they'll tell us, like, like the choke. I mean, if you've been choked before for real, that is triggering. That is really triggering. And so that is why we say that. If you don't want to do this, you don't have to. We, we're not here to trigger you. We're here to help you. And hair pulls. Um, we had a student one time that that's how her, her ex-husband attacked her was he pulled her hair. And she's like, I want to learn this technique, but I don't want you to pull my hair. Can you please just pull my collar? Yeah, we can do that. Oh, yeah, what a great example of how you can adapt and still get the learning. That's great. Well, there's another question that I have just been sitting here just like chomping at the bit because I really, really, really want to ask you and I don't want to run out of time. So I'm going to throw it in here. How has working with developmentally disabled adults influenced your understanding of self-defense and the way that you coach? Yeah, that's a great question. That's something that people might not think to ask because, you know, look at my resume that's just kind of thrown out there. Part of it was, as I just said, a certain amount of women, men too, have been sexually assaulted. The population that I worked with, most of, they were older and most of them grew up in mental hospitals. And I was told on like my first or second day that any one of my clients who grew up in a mental hospital, I need to assume that they've have been sexually assaulted because they probably have that unfortunately it's that prevalent to that population so that really increased my understanding and my sensitivity to people who you might not look at and see that they think that they've been sexually assaulted but in fact they have and again this thing that i do with you know and i'm in a group of women and looking and okay a quarter of us have been sexually assaulted you can't tell we act totally normal can't tell who's been sexually assaulted who hasn't just by looking at them because people are so resilient. You, you can't tell, but you have to always make that assumption. The other thing with my clients is most of them were nonverbal. Most of them couldn't speak. Most of them couldn't even sign. And a lot of them had violent behaviors and they can't tell you why they're getting upset. So I learned to read people really fast. I learned to read their facial expressions and, and body language and see when are they starting to get agitated and try to figure out what is making them agitated and then how to de-escalate them. Because I did not want them to have a violent behavior, um, not only because I didn't want to get hit, but if they hit another client, they would lose their space in the group home and now they have to go back to the mental hospital. So when they became violent, I had to protect them from themselves as well as protect me and the other clients because I cared about them. I didn't want them to have to go back to the mental hospital. And if anybody wants to learn how a really fast way to learn how to 
read when somebody's getting agitated. This was actually part of my training with the developmentally disabled adults. The movie A Few Good Men, the you can't handle the truth scene, that scene was a big part of my, my training because Jack Nicholson goes in there onto the witness stand, totally calm, cool, collected, totally in control, starts getting a little more agitated, a little more agitated. Now he's getting really agitated and then he completely loses it. And he's like violent and by the end of the scene and they're, they're pulling him out. And his portrayal of that was, was spot on. So watching that scene and seeing how he went cool, calm, cool, collected, and just a few minutes later, the scene's only like, what, five minutes long? So he goes from totally calm to violent in five minutes, and he played it perfectly. That was a really great part of my training. And then I used that with my clients to see when they started to get agitated. And now I have to look around, okay, what's making them agitated? And then try to figure that out and then try to de-escalate them. So that's really interesting. When when you were starting to notice something that was a little concerning, what were the things that you were looking at to try to assess what was causing that behavior change? Well, first, noticing the behavior it, itself, um, like darting heads or fidgety hands. Um, if you start getting to the point where they're rocking back and forth, now it, it's getting pretty serious. So it was individual for each person, and they couldn't tell us what it what it was. And there was one woman, it was literally the wind. She had a deformity in her ears that made wind and certain kinds of airflow painful. She can't tell us that it's painful. She She couldn't speak, couldn't sign. So she's sitting there getting painful and you know darting her head back and forth and so everybody else is having a good time because you know a light breeze is nice but it's hitting her head in such a way that it's starting to cause pain so looking around knowing what okay what's going on oh there's a slight breeze it's getting a little bit stronger let's get her out of here let's get her indoors or maybe some people it was a noise that was a little too loud just everybody has their own thing that kind of sets them off and that's true of People who aren't developmentally disabled either, we all have our, I don't want to say triggers, that's probably strong a word, but we all have the things that really annoy us. And if we don't have the ability to change our situation and to articulate what's going on, and why we're getting annoyed and that stimulus is still there, yeah, we're going to get agitated maybe to the point of, of violence. So I really tried to head, head that off for them and try to figure it out, look around, what is it that could be agitating this person how do i stop that so they don't become violent that's a great insight right there and it's making me think of a couple of things uh, one is that often when we are around somebody who is for some reason sort of losing it and we personally probably wouldn't we sit there in judgment a lot of the time and like what's wrong with them rather than having compassion and empathy and saying there's something wrong. I wonder what it is. And so having that curiosity to try to figure it out. And it's very similar, that situation of not being able to communicate to somebody else what is causing distress for you is something that toddlers experience. You know, like they don't have the words, they can't influence their environment. Sometimes they can't even tell you what it is that's bothering them, but there's something bothering them. And that's your job as a parent to figure out exactly what's going on because they can't tell you. 
And the other thing is it's making me think of working with horses because horses also, their behavior can sometimes be really weird. And you can look at them and say, you know, God, this is a bad horse. Why is this horse doing this obnoxious stuff? But if you come at it and say, well, there's got to be something going on. There's got to be a reason why. I wonder what that is. Then you can actually get curious and discover or at least experiment and try to figure out and identify what the cause is. And I think that often a big source of conflict is that we just assume there's the other person, there's something wrong with them and that there is no good reason for them to be behaving that way. And we don't get curious and we don't try to figure out what it is. So I love that you had this sort of crash course in observing people's behavior, but also in being in that state of curiosity and compassion and going through that process of trying to suss out what could it be? There's got to be something. What could it be? So that's, that's a fascinating aspect of your life experience. And I can see how that really gives you a, an additional tool to use when you work with people. Yeah, because if they have that behavior, it makes sense to them. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to us. We're not them. They're the ones having that experience, not us. And so we have to understand what's going on with them. Even if I find a light breeze refreshing and lovely, she didn't because she had this deformity. So it's her experience is the more important thing. But we can even use this with ourselves because there was one time I was shopping with my sister and my sister is very noise sensitive and the store had construction going on, which was like <laughs> the worst thing when you're with a noise sensitive person and we needed to do the shopping and um, she's starting to get agitated and I'm trying to calm her down. You know, we'll, we'll go over to this part of the store and it's not that bad. We'll, you know, we'll try to go quickly and give me your shopping list. And, you know, you, you can hear how I'm changing my voice, thinking about how, I'm, how I talk to her calm and slow and sing songy a little bit and then at one point I was like okay we just need to get out of here and I realized oh I've hit my limit I'm agitated now all this construction is making me upset now I'm in that state now I need to separate myself from the construction noise we got to go and so we quickly paid and left but you can so you can use that to de-escalate your own self what is the stimulus why am I feeling this way how do I separate myself from it that is huge. You know, when we talk about situational awareness, oftentimes people just think of it as being an external process. And yet there is this whole inner realm where it also is hugely important. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. So I'm curious, what are some of the strategies that you use or that you suggest that people can use when they are dealing with somebody who is starting to get agitated, starting to have an issue and you don't quite know what it is. What are some of the things you can do to de-escalate and some things to avoid so that you don't actually escalate the behavior? Compassion that you mentioned is a really big part of it. De-escalate your own self first. So when you notice that you're starting to get agitated by their behavior, bring yourself down and you got to de-escalate yourself first. And then it's really just a matter of working the problem and one thing I learned with the developmentally disabled adults is the solution is 
unique to every single person. If something worked for client A, it might not work for client B because client B is a different person. And there were a lot of times when we would come up with behavior plans and somebody had a behavior that either we didn't like or maybe we're teaching them a new skill. And we had to come up with a plan for either stopping the behavior we don't like or teaching the new skill that they should have. And so we'd come up with a behavior plan. And a lot of times we'd be like, hey, this is a great behavior plan. And somebody would have to say, it's not a great behavior plan unless it works for that client. They will tell us if it's a good behavior plan. So in dealing with somebody who's starting to get agitated, it's whatever's going to work for them. And your past experience with other people does matter and does count, but you really have to look at what is going on with that person and how to bring that down and how to bring them down. So I don't know if there's any specific quick remedy to de-escalating a person um, because everybody is different and what's going to work for one person might not work for another person, but de-escalating your own self first and generally trying to talk in a calmer voice Try to slow down your own speed and sometimes ask them for the solution. I'm really sorry this happened. I'm trying to solve the problem. What would you like me to do? A lot of times they will tell you what, what they need you to do to calm down. And if it's something reasonable, do it. If it's something unreasonable, obviously you can't do it. We have boundaries. You know, if somebody is like, well, you know, angry, well, you took my parking space. You know what you can do? You can kiss my ass. No, I'm obviously not going to do that, even if they like, like really mean it. But um, if it's something like, you know, you, you took my parking space and um, I'm really angry. I demand you give it back. You know, I'm an able-bodied person. And if they need that parking space because they have an injury or maybe there's the territorial jerk. Uh, okay, fine. I can walk a little bit bigger distance. I, you know, if that's what it takes to avoid the fight, that that's fine with. And so the, a lot of times they will give you the solution. No, oh, that's great. Or you just work the problem. Yeah, there's a lot of parallel between that and teaching self-defense. One of the issues that we have as instructors is that we're not prescriptive. We can't say, you know, just do this and it'll work because in you know probably the most hated phrase in self-defense it all depends on the scenario so i see a lot of parallels right there and it all depends on the person because i'm a small woman and um for me personally acting really aggressive often de-escalates the other person because it's so weird and unexpected if the other person is a man i'm not going to act aggressive toward a woman but if there's some big huge man who's acting really aggressively toward me it, this works for me, and I cannot tell other women to do this, but a lot of the time, if I get in his face, he'll back down because it's just so weird having a small woman get in your face. But if I tell another woman to do that, she might get herself attacked, and there's no way another man could do that because they see that other man as like as, as an equal or a rival or as an actual threat. So for, for me, acting aggressively toward a man de-escalates. For most people, that's not going to work, and I can't teach that. Yeah. I can't tell other women to do that. I can't even tell men to do that. So I guess my wrap-up kind of question, I have two. One is, what are the most common misconceptions or false beliefs 
about personal safety or self-defense that you encounter in the women who come to your class? That's the first one. One of the most common misconceptions that I get from both men and women is that situational awareness means being paranoid. And how I encountered this with women is in, in my class, I tell them, do not be paranoid. I do not want to make you paranoid. Situational awareness, you know, we all say it is you establish baseline and anything interest, anything that's different is going to get your attention. The good news to this is most things that are different are interesting and cool and beautiful. And so once you increase your situational awareness, you're going to notice interesting things more and it's going to make your life better. Don't go looking for strangers around every corner and dangers in the bushes. Um, first of all, they're probably not there. 80% of rapists are known by their victims. So stranger danger does exist, but it, it's overblown. Just understand what baseline is. And I kind of tell them when they first start doing this, set a goal. Today, I'm going to notice an interesting hairdo. And just go about their day and interesting hairdo will, will jump out at them. Or I'm going to notice flowers or the color red or whatever it is they want to have a goal. One they've gotten themselves to kind of, they have a goal and throughout the day that will jump out at them. Now I tell them have no specific goals. Now your goal is to just find something interesting. I'm going to walk down the street. I'm not going to actively look for something interesting. I'll just see whatever is interesting pops out at me. And this enhances your everyday life and doesn't make you paranoid. And it's actually kind of fun. And when I was at the airport coming back from Violence Dynamics Prime this last time, I'm sitting at the airport bar and I'm chatting with my friends on Facebook and I was saying my observations and there was this um, very young woman just a few seats down from me and I was watching the men looking at her and I was saying, if any of these men make a move, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them. Um, luckily, none of them were that stupid. But still, I'm, I'm like saying all my observations and one of the guys asked me, are you really that paranoid? And I said, no, I'm not at all paranoid. I just have high situational awareness. And he said, what's the difference? And I said, fun. Having high situational awareness is fun. It's not paranoid. If you find yourself getting paranoid, you're doing it wrong. You have to sit back and reassess. So that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that having situational awareness is paranoid. It's not paranoid. It's fun. These things should enhance our lives. Having high situational awareness should make your daily life more fun, more interesting, more beautiful. I love that. I'm sitting here with this massive smile across my face. <laughs> Love it. It's great. <laughs> so how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? By being the happiest person they can be. And this is kind of my ending speech to my students at the end of class is be the happiest person you can be. That's the best thing you can do for your own self-defense because that makes you look like a hard target. That kind of confidence makes you look like a hard target. Don't try to fake being perfect because people can smell that perfection and they will use it against you. That is true if we're talking about stranger danger or people you kind of know or intimate partners. If you try to pretend you're something you're not, people can use that against you. People can use it to manipulate you. Whatever your flaws are, embrace it completely and totally. As part of you, you are awesome and amazing. Embrace your flaws. Now nobody can use it to manipulate you. If you're an anxious person, don't try to fake confidence. People smell that, that fakeness and they will manipulate you. 
and said, embrace the fact that you're anxious. This is part of you. You are awesome and amazing. Your anxiety is part of you. But pretty soon, that will make you confident. That full acceptance of yourself will be legitimate. It will not be fake. And that will make you into a hard target. And because this is a seminar-based class, and because most of the women are probably not going to go on to be martial artists, even though we totally encourage them at every opportunity throughout the class to, to become a martial artist, join a school, not necessarily ours. We will help them find any school in their area of a style that's well-suited for them. But most aren't going to do that, let's face it. I tell them, whatever your hobby is, that is your martial art. Whatever your favorite thing to do is, that is your best self-defense. If you like to tap dance, then be the best tap dancer you can be, and that's your best self-defense. Not that you're going to tap dance all of the person who attacks you, but being happy and confident makes you to a hard target, and it makes you less likely that you're going to be targeted for assault in the first place. Be the happiest person you can be, live the happiest life you can live. That is your best self-defense. Boom. That's awesome. I don't have anything else to say. That's just like mic drop right there. (laughs) (laughs) Eric usually speaks after that. I go first and then he has the last words. And he tells them that they've already done the most important part of their self-care, which is coming to the class in the first place. They've done the most important part of the martial arts, which is getting onto the mat the first time. That is the most difficult thing you can do in any martial art is step onto the mat for the first time. They've already done that by showing up to class that day. They've made a statement that they are worth defending, that their lives are worth defending. They've shown that to themselves now by showing up and, and to just know that they, they are absolutely worth it and they're worthy. And I, he says it so well. I'm sorry that I'm butchering his amazingly beautiful words, but that's basically what, what he says. Yeah. But he's kind of a wordsmith and he has just a really beautiful way of saying it. Well, I think you expressed it very well. So I'm so glad that you've agreed to come on the show. I know that there are going to be women who are going to want to follow up with you. What are the best ways to get in touch with you? Right now, the best way is through our Facebook page. Our company is Street Shield Self-Defense, and that is our Facebook page. That is the best way to, to find us. And I post a lot of soft skill stuff there almost every day. We don't post any technique because we really feel that you need to have a teacher present to really understand technique. But I post a lot of soft skill stuff almost every day. And as of this recording, our website isn't quite up yet. It should be up soon. And that will be streetshieldselfdefense.com. I'm saying I because I do most social media. Not on Twitter or Instagram yet. I'm hoping that will come up soon. And again, where the name of our company is Street Shield Self-Defense. So that's what the account will be. Okay. I will put all of that in our show notes. And just in case there are people who happen to travel to Boise, what's the name of your restaurant? Oh, thank you. It's Bella Aquila Restaurant. It's in Eagle, which is a suburb of Boise. We're right on the Boise River. As I've said several times, it's absolutely beautiful. Please come and see us. Please come and see me and tell me that you heard the show and you're interested in this stuff. And I will be more than happy to talk to anyone. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you, Amy Stewart Cooper, for coming on the show. This has been a fascinating conversation and full of juicy little nuggets and a lot of great insight. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. This has been wonderful. 
Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.